0: Does money matter in schools? Unquestionably. For every state flag, Dr. John Jackson says, you'll also find a school funding lawsuit. Why? Because we have 50 different ways of funding schools, and most of those ways are unequal. On today's show, Rethinking Education Funding in America as part of our larger charge, establishing a fundamental right to education thanks for listening I'm Joe Bishop this is our children can't wait a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing our children can't wait is also a book from teachers college press available for purchase from Amazon and if you're new to the our children can't wait podcast please follow us on Spotify and Apple podcasts. There's a reason why we discussed Brown v. Board in the second episode of this podcast, all roads to the state of our education leads back to Brown v. Board. Here's John Jackson from episode two of our children can't wait.
1: I often say that Brown in many respects, was a first down, not a touchdown for our young people, because a few years later in San Antonio versus Rodriguez, the Supreme Court was asked whether education is a fundamental right, which means that the resourcing that goes from the federal level to the districts had to ensure that there was some level of equity. The Supreme Court in that decision said that education was not a fundamental right which in many respects was a setback.
0: And that's where we're camping out for this episode. Seeing the ways that the river of dollars from local, state, and federal taxes move in and out of our schools, or sometimes don't even show up. I'm excited to introduce you to two people who I know will change how you think about the ways we fund schools. Dr. Oscar Jimenez-Castellanos is director of preschool to 12th grade research for the Education Trust, a national advocacy organization.
1: I am currently the director of research for P-12 at the Education Trust in Washington, D.C., previously was at USC as a visiting Scholar, Arizona State, and a few other institutions, working a lot of my research, looking at educational policy equity and finance. So it's a pleasure to be here with you, Joe and Danielle.
0: Dr. Danielle Ferry is research director with the Education Law Center a national organization that has been pushing the country towards fair and just funding for decades.
2: Hi, I am Danielle Farry. I am Research Director at Education Law Center in New Jersey, and I am also very happy to be here.
0: Everyone has a story about why they do what they do. Oscar and Danielle are no different. In fact, what's interesting about Oscar and Danielle is how wildly different their perspectives are. Oscar brings a real West Coast vibe Influenced by the California ag economy And Latino families Over the last five decades Danielle on the other hand Comes to inequality through the lens Of an East Coast Black-white paradigm that we saw in New Jersey The epicenter of one of the Largest school funding lawsuits Ever It was called the Abbott case And she'll tell you about that in a bit Oscar, this is a question we ask everybody when we start the show. How did your upbringing shape your interests as a scholar today?
1: No, I think it's fundamental in terms of how I think about the world. Um, I was born in Mexico, a large family. Uh, My parents were small uh, business owners, and they had seven children at the time, and they decided to leave Mexico and come to the United States to give their children a better life through education and they sacrificed themselves to a large degree. They became farm workers in California, and all eight of us at the the end of the day uh, graduated from high school, went on to four-year universities and two PhDs. However, the experience of when I came to the United States and entered my schooling was very different, right? In terms of, it was a small rural community, And there was a lot of bifurcation or segregation and racism that occurred um, between the predominantly white community that held a lot of the political power and the the labor working community that were primarily Mexican, uh, Mexican Mexican-Americans. And then going through the educational system, understanding sort of the tracking system and the inequities that sort of bestowed education played a large role. And then when I became a teacher, mm. I was um, a K 12 teacher um, in urban settings, predominantly African American, Latino, and Hmong communities in Sacramento, my first job. Mm. And, you know, it was so disheartening to see that our school had so limited resources. And you literally would go one mile down the road, <laughs> cross a highway, yeah. and you would see a completely different experience. So, yes, all of that mm. sort of helped shape why I got interested in, in this work of school finance and
0: education policy equity. And Dr. Jimenez Castellanos, so tell me, the, where did you spend most of your childhood in terms of the schools?
1: All of my sort of school age was done in a, a small town near Sacramento. Mm-hmm. It was basically from the very beginning to high school. So it was in one setting, um, in one community.
0: Got it. Well, Oscar, we've spoken a fair amount, and I did not know that your history, your family history, Dr. Ferry. So same question. as a scholar, educator, how did your upbringing shape your interests today?
2: I went to a public high school in New Jersey in a very wealthy school district that you know, was sort of you got everything you needed and more. But I was fortunate enough that I um, took a sociology class in mm. my junior year or something. With a teacher who um, I think was attempting to radicalize us, although I don't think most students <laughs> caught on, he had us read um, *Savage Inequalities*, and I was—I mean, just sort of dumbstruck. And it really became just like an issue that I was passionate about for for many years. So that's what actually influenced my decision to study sociology, probably against my uh, parents' <laughs> better judgment when I went to college, you know, I went to a liberal arts college and, you know, I kept saying that I was undecided, but I think all along I always knew that I wanted mm. to study sociology. So I did that and then, you know, continued on to um, to get my PhD where I I did study education issues related to like, you know, segregation and school choice and stuff like that. But I mean, I always just say that the link between my high school um, Mm -hmm. sociology course and ending up working at the Ed Law Center seemed like, you know, kind of fate for me. Because I learned subsequently that uh, Marilyn Morehouser, who was the nun who spearheaded the Mm. Abbott litigation, actually is the one who talked Jonathan Kozel into looking at the differences in the educational settings between uh, Cherry Hill and Camden in New Jersey. Yeah, so so it all it all kind of came full circle. And and the other thing that I don't think I quite understood at the time was that, you know, it was like nineteen ninety-four. It was like right in the midst of Abbott sort of gaining steam, right? So they've they've won, you know, the initial decision, but it was just, you know, the state kind of dragging their feet and trying to pass these school finance reforms and this, you know, so it was Abbott two, Abbott Three, Abbott Four happening while I was sitting in, you know, in that classroom. Up in the mountains of New Jersey <laughs> wow. uh, with all of the resources that I could have possibly asked for. And then, you know, students not that far down the road really being deprived of, of the resources that they needed.
0: So before we go back to Oscar, for listeners who are not familiar with the Abbott case or are not from New Jersey, or not legal scholars, what is the Abbott case?
2: So Abbott um, is a school finance uh, litigation that was brought in New Jersey um, in the 80s, uh, maybe Mm -hmm. earlier, where they were arguing that students were being deprived of their constitutional rights to a public education because Mm -hmm. of the funding structure that was largely dependent on property taxes and Mm -hmm. created vast disparities in um, the resources that students were able to access. And so that case has gone on for 40 years. It's still active. Um, We've Mm. had many um, victories in that litigation, but also some setbacks. And, you know, it's a, as all school finance litigation is, it's an ongoing uphill battle um, where you Mm. have, you know, you have victories and you have setbacks and you have to kind of keep going. So that's, that is the Abbott litigation and education law center where I work is the law firm that, that led that litigation.
0: Thank you, Danielle. So I heard Danielle say a term and Dr. Jimenez Castellanos, you just said this as well. School finance. So what do we mean, Oscar, by school finance? For for listeners who are, who are not familiar with the term, or like what, what does it mean?
1: It's basically the, the structures in place to in particular at the state level, because you know We have a decentralized system here in the United States, so it's primarily at the state level, but we can also talk about federal uh, school Mm -hmm. finance as well for sure. But looking at sort of how a state sort of designs a system to not only educate, but then provide the resources and the monies to them. So it's how is a system designed to generate the funds, and then Mm -hmm. how is the, uh, the system designed to then... More, almost equally as important, allocate those funds. Mm-hmm. And through what mechanisms are they doing that? Um, really sort of opens up sort of Pandora's box about, you know, is that not only the best way or an efficient way, an equitable way, an adequate way to fund that system? And a lot of times it depends on what the state's constitution outlines as sort of the marker, um, mm-hmm. b- again, because of the decentralized way of, of funding schools in, in the United States.
0: And when you say decentralized, I just want to make sure we're understanding that term to Oscar.
1: Right. So, you know, most countries that are comparable to the United States have a centralized system, meaning that the um, the decisions and the governance sort of runs through the federal government. Education is a Fundamental right in that country. In right. most of those centralized countries, in fact, one hundred and ninety-five out of the two hundred and three countries in the world have uh, education as a constitutional right in in their country. We do not. Wow. It's really left up to uh, each individual state.
0: Say that again. There's a one hundred and ninety-five
1: out of two hundred and three countries. that have in their constitution education as a fundamental right. Hmm. The United States is not one of them.
0: That's a great segue to a theme that you and Dr. Ferry and David Quinn talk about in Chapter 12 from Our Children Can't Wait. You talk about school finance as a tool for racial injustice. Could you say more, Oscar, and and could you expand upon what Oscar says, Daniel?
1: So in thinking about sort of this chapter for this wonderful book, right, which is all about transforming our educational system mm-hmm. and really focusing on school finance as sort of the primary focus for this chapter, we spent some time trying to think about historically, how can we sort of define our school finance system in very broad terms? Right. Really, there's been, in my opinion, two distinct waves. The traditional school finance literature defines different waves. I'm going to define them in two fundamental tidal waves, if you will, not small waves. And it's really about sort of how our country was founded upon and how it was built and who was living here and who had the power and how institutions were built. So the argument here in this in this chapter is that our school funding system, like our country in general, was founded upon structural and systemic racism mm-hmm. that really privileged those with power, those that were white, and those that were men in this country. So that era from the very beginning from when education became something that the government started to not only develop but also fund uh, sometime around in the 1600s um, then we're starting to really think about how it was funded and it was funded primarily through property taxes right and right. It, it, and at that time property taxes were um, was built on who owned land uh, and and property. Mm. And when, if you're a Black in that time, you didn't have the opportunity really to own any land. Very, Mm -hmm. very few, um, if any, were able to do that. And the Native Americans who were here didn't ascribe to owning the land. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So it really was a white concept, a very colonial concept that was institutionalized here in the United States.
0: That history is something that actually we've been talking about the podcast around the episode on integration, on housing. This theme has come up over and over and over again. Danielle, could, could you expand upon the idea before we jump into kind of where, where do we go from here, but the idea of school finance as a, as a tool for injustice?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think beyond the sort of the history, what Oscar explained so well, You know, more recently, we see how um, policies at the state and local level affect the resources that students have access to and the schools that they are able to attend. And so it's, you know, it's obviously not that long ago that we had segregated schools. Mm-hmm. We currently still have, we had you know, we had legally segregated schools. We now currently still have de facto segregated schools. Mm-hmm. And with so many of our schools still relying on property taxes to fund the school systems, we have these enormous inequities um, still. I think that it's quite clear that the policy of of being able to fund schools locally is something that gives certain people a lot of power and a lot of decision making around the types of schools that their children get to go to. Mm -hmm. And it leaves a lot of other people without those schools and without that power. And that is something that I think that we could um, easily argue is not unintentional.
0: Mm. Could you say more?
2: I think that, you know, in a political vacuum, it's easy to figure out a way that we could fund schools so that all students get what they need, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the money and the resources are are there in order to direct them to the places where we want them to go. But I think that the obvious problem that we have is that we have people in certain communities who are unwilling to part with resources that they see as as theirs, you know, this whole issue of local control. and. Yep. You know, you can't take my property taxes to fund those kids. And that is the, the hurdle that we are,
1: we are faced with. We have sort of not, not only the history, but really active government policies that have facilitated this racial inequity in school funding, right? Through the segregation that we talked about, but also the redlining that occurred people of color uh, could not legally buy land in certain communities in this country. And then those, those lands that the people of color could buy were deemed inferior uh, right. Producing less property wealth for those communities, right? And then also in the run the 1950s, right when the whole civil rights era was really picking up, school districting became a thing, mm. and it was also very much racially uh, biased to maintain sort of that housing segregation that was already in place so it really has been systematic and those legacies still remain right so after the civil rights era where we had serrano we had rodriguez we had some very key wins and losses but at least the issue of of school funding and school finance became really uh, a national issue then we became you know people say well I think, you know, we solved that issue because we had Serrano and Serrano solved all that. And and in fact, you know, that's the second part of the tidal wave, right? So not only do we have the racial inequity legacy that we are still hampered by, but also right. now we have sort of this, what we call a remedial distributive justice in school finance.
0: Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote. And I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, a school counselor, maybe a parent. Maybe you make policy at the state level or for a school board. Or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic. So we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast, please. Stop and email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There's a saying that if you want to see where a school, state, or country's priorities are, look no further than their budget. This podcast is all about policy and budgets, right? And education budgets are all about policy. Oscar just commented that money often institutionalizes a low-quality education for some communities. What does he mean by that? He means that by underfunding some schools, we can predict poor facilities, fewer or outdated textbooks, and underprepared teachers. We are normalizing a low-quality education through the way we fund some schools, cementing inequities, in the process,
2: I think um, maybe what, one of the ways to sort of think about the remedial framework um, mm-hmm. is also this this notion that we just need to copy and paste the type of educational experience that one has onto mm-hmm. another group, and if we do it the right way, we will get the same outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just like a bunch of questions about whether or not that's true, right? Like, what works for this group is it going to work for the other group, and then you know, asking the question of you know what are the outcomes that that we want to see, and the sort of very narrow way that we have um, over the past few decades started to focus on education, which is simply just meeting these metrics of assessment and you know yep. a sort of narrow curriculum in that sense, mm-hmm. is really doing a disservice to a lot of communities and not recognizing a lot of the inherent value in their culture and in their community.
1: Another big problem with remedial distributive justice is that it ignores the roots of systemic racism, right? So it's just saying that by adding a few more dollars, we're actually going to improve sort of centuries of systemic racism, which is not the silver bullet that I think is needed.
0: What I hear you both saying is we've essentially, are our default response has been to paint walls on buildings or in buildings where the foundation is crumbling or the bar is so low that we've, we've codified or kind of normalized a low bar for communities of color in, in, in direct response to what we've done. Yes. I asked Oscar and Danielle, what is a transformative justice paradigm for funding education?
1: this notion of transformative justice in school finance is really an attempt to really think about how can we fundamentally sort of change the whole setting, change the structures of how we actually do the work that we're intending to do for for kids and families. So one is we actually uh, critique what restorative justice would require, you know, especially within our framework, what are we restoring? Are we restoring back to the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, <laughs> um, 1950s? So within the context of school finance and within the, the historical framework that we're laying out, restorative justice is, is definitely insufficient because there's no time and place where the school finance system worked for black and brown and low income communities. So mm. that's, uh, I just want to make that highlight. So, what is transformative uh, justice? One that actually looks at structural justice, things that understand the broader economic, political, and historical context that schools sort of undergird. Right. And that the school funding system is part of those larger structures. One. Secondly, it's an asset based distributive justice. So, this is where we get to the notion that distributive justice. In itself is not a bad thing. We critique remedial distributive justice as insufficient, but we do need to acknowledge that we need more resources, more funding, but it needs to be framed from an asset-based perspective. What does that mean? Building on the strengths of the communities, the poor communities and communities of color with those additional resources and not to remediate their education, but to enrich their education. Mm, and and okay. then lastly, it's, it's also who makes the decisions, how are decisions made, who's at the table, who's included, and are those communities most affected by an unfair school funding system? Mm-hmm. Are they part of that equation? And is their dignity valued and enhanced through that process? So that is what we mean by a transformative justice, one that is structural, asset-based and procedural with a dignity uh, base as well
0: say more about dignity oscar because i you hear folks talk about equity and justice and funding and resource allocation but rarely is the word dignity used could you Explain that the significance and why as a team you chose that, that word.
1: If we're really going to transform our system, one, the structures two, sort of the, how, how do we distribute and what framework do we use to distribute funding and what that's asset based, but you're right. When we really thought about transformative is traditionally very few people make decisions about how a system is designed and structured very few. Folks like, you know, that are advocating on behalf of poor families and families of color, such as the, the law center that Danielle comes from, they're the very few that are actually advocating and, and at the table, but the people themselves that are most affected are many times sidelined in terms of the decision making so the procedural justice is really important to how do we engage those communities that are traditionally marginalized and then secondly the dignity and is how do we treat them with equal status not as just a check mark to make sure that we include them to say face and to say that we've included them, but do we treat them with equal status in that process? And that is what I mean by, or we mean by dignity.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Oscar, for, for clarifying. I also was curious about how to get there. What examples could be applied to these big ideas on funding schools?
2: We argue in the chapter that this has to be like a, a systems level approach, right? That the policy changes have to come at, at many different levels, but primarily they must come from uh, state law, local policy, hmm. and you know, federal ha- could potentially have a role to play in sort of um, spurring the two other actors to uh, to move move along. At the state level, you know, the states are primarily responsible for determining how school funding is distributed across districts within a state. The idea that state policy has to be responsive to the citizens is something that we often pay lip service to, but is something that is um, often far less successfully, you know, practiced in action. But I think it's something that we have to make sure that we are intentionally striving towards as we look at what students need. So, you know, from, from the perspective of the Ed Law Center, when states are figuring out how to fund schools the central question should always be what resources do students need in order to achieve the standards and you know outcomes that we you know have set for them the way that we have typically answered that question is just by politicians either making up a number that they're comfortable with <laughs> or relying on a very sort of select few um like Oscar was saying, you know, researchers and experts to sort of lay out the resources that are necessary. You know, all of these are still going to be important. You know, as we try to you know figure out school finance systems, but I think what we're arguing is the missing piece is the voices of the students and the families and the communities that are that are most affected by these policies. And so we have to figure out ways to bring those voices into the conversations. And allowing them to envision new models, right? Like new ways of organizing classrooms and schools and the school day and whatever. And so, you know, that is a real challenge. And, you know, like Oscar said, it's often something that is put in, you know, a state's plan if they're doing a school finance reform, community engagement, check. We had some meetings, <laughs> we heard some comments and we wrote the comments down and then we actually didn't really do anything to address them because the plan was already the plan before we brought you into this meeting anyway. So, you know, we think that like, obviously it's, it's, it's hard work, but that's the, the struggle of bringing those voices into those conversations at the get go. If I could give an example that we, you know, we use in the chapter mm-hmm. would be New Mexico. So New Mexico was one of the states that engaged in school finance litigation because of inequities within their system that were especially tied to um, sort of the deprivation of resources for students from low income backgrounds, students who are English learners, um, students from native backgrounds. And, you know, there was this really amazing movement um, from the community to, to identify their own vision, right, their own platform of what education should mean in their state and that included a lot of elements around multicultural curricula understanding the needs of the students respecting the you know students who have dual language abilities respecting their language of origin all of that stuff into a platform that then you know in the ideal world will inform the policies that the legislature then adopts to I don't want to say remediate, I shouldn't say remediate, but um, as part of the lawsuit, right, to address the inequities that were highlighted. So mm-hmm. that's a place where, you know, we're seeing it it happen. It, there's always challenges in terms of getting it, you know, implemented in law, but I think they're doing a really great job of of keeping the pressure on and, you know, highlighting the voices of, of, of people who have traditionally not been part of that conversation.
0: And Danielle, you and Oscar and David also talk about Sanger Unified and give examples of federal funds. Oscar, why Sanger? Why why did you include Sanger Unified? And for folks who don't know where Sanger is, that'd be helpful for kind of geographic context.
1: California recently went through a pretty large reform, their first reform in many, many years. And You know, I like to say that California was not innovative in any way, (laughs) although I'm a Californian, so it pains me to say that. In terms of the the system that they designed, it's it's, it's a very typical foundation system that many other states have. They added their own wrinkle to it. Um, However, in my opinion, the real uh, innovation that California did with this is the local control accountability plan. Which really, in theory, is supposed to be the way that a school, and a school district in particular, sort of sort of thinks about the allocation of funds to meet the needs of all students in that district. So it is, in theory, a very community-driven plan that should help inform the way that the budget is then used to, to serve their needs. Sanger is a community, is a, is a very uh, rural community in the Central Valley of California. It's outside mm. of Fresno, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And yep. they have been able to sort of use that um, local control accountability plan to really produce sort of outlier <laughs> results, meaning mm. that they're sort of beating the odds or whatever term you want to say in terms of outperforming similar like schools. Hmm.
2: Some of the really sort of innovative ways that Sanger took the opportunity to utilize these um, accountability plans in order to move their school system forward was to really to meaningfully engage the community. Right. So they had multiple different um, commissions and committees where they had community members, families, parents, um, students, you know, also an, an important component of this, I think, was involving community groups that provide services to students outside of the school building, like right. all involved in conversations around what the schools should be doing and the goals for the for the schools. You know, there were there was also a lot of trying to break down hierarchies in terms yeah. of decision making. So the teachers were given a lot more um, sort of responsibility and flexibility and decision-making power, which I think has you know through other research shown that like if you if you allow teachers to you know make decisions around how they teach, you get a lot better results. And so those are kind of some of the the practices that they put in place that. Strengthen the school community, and then you know that school climate um, improvements also leads to all kinds of other you know benefits in terms of social, emotional, and academic achievement.
1: Although we we did provide a few examples, you know, New Mexico at the state level, Sanger yeah. at the local level, and the ESSER mm-hmm. funding at the national level. You know, we're we're not trying to assert that any one of them is actually implementing a transformational model. But there's glimpses in each one of them that have the potentiality to have some transformative nature, right? So the, the challenge, uh, um, the real challenge is how do we actually align all three across mm-hmm. such a large country as the United States with 50 different systems of mm-hmm. educating children and thousands of school districts uh, mm-hmm. across that system? I think that is the the real challenging uh, notion of it and only through a transformational model that actually sort of has some pillars that one can sort of build on can we actually achieve that because you know it's it's great if one or two districts are doing something fantastic but don't all children deserve a fair funding system that serves their needs and those of the community I, I think they do
0: when you say all three you're talking about federal state, and local and just for folks understanding ESSERS, so we're talking about the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds, which were tied to COVID, over $200 billion. But, but what, what I'm hearing you say is that there has to be a common set of principles and values driving the, the distribution of funds at all these levels in order for us to achieve these, these notions of justice for our country and even coming back to, to where we started, a history of, of white supremacy and school funding has codified these ideas in very real ways in communities is, is what I've, I've heard. And you have to read in chapter 12 of Our Children Can't Wait, uh, Oscar, Danielle, and David really outline, I think, a powerful plan and way of thinking about school funding that honestly, I've never seen anybody put, put words to paper what you have. So thank you. And, and here's my last question. What's the one thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation today? What's the one thing? And you know, We're talking about listeners who are educators, who are in philanthropy, who are staff for lawmakers, um, community-based organizations, organizers. You know, what, what's the one thing you want them to take away?
1: To that particular audience, uh, which mm-hmm. are those folks most impacted and most on the ground, mm-hmm. I would say the, the message is you know, keep up the fight. Right, meaning, you know, make sure that you insert yourself even when you're not intended to be inserted. So mm. you know the the tremendous work done in states like Delaware currently and other states that are really trying. Tennessee had some recent successes that I trust was involved in. There are states that are doing pockets of good work. So I would my message, my message to those folks, is don't take a backseat, you know, stay, stay engaged, stay involved. You're needed most than anybody from a policy perspective, though, Joe, if, if I may, I think policymakers need to sort of really, the message is stop the elitism, stop the, the bureaucracy that is alienating the systems that are meant to serve the communities the most and really mm. reach out and meaningfully engage them, because that is really the way that we can sort of build a movement from the bottom up. Um, it's going right. to take those that are on the ground to keep the fight up, but it's also going to take those in power to sort of create spaces. And 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 we may have some few brave souls left in in politics and in policy that that can do that. So those would be my messages to both sides of the equation.
0: Thank you, Oscar. Great advice.
2: It sounds trite, but I think, you know, you have to tell people to sort of think big, right? Like that that's sort of the whole <laughs> the whole premise behind the chapter, right? Is that we have to find new things, right? Like we need to keep striving to think about ways that we can break down these systems that don't always work for our kids. Right. And so that is really hard. Um, It's hard work, but that's where we have to go to. And so in in that sense, I think it's really important for the research community to speak to the policy community Mm -hmm. and really highlight and uplift places where people are doing really innovative things, even Mm -hmm. if it's a, you know, one school building, one classroom, whatever it is. I mean, the only way that we're going to get people to sign on to these sort of radical transformations is by demonstrating that they actually work. And so we have to maybe start small, but also think big. Hmm. I'm trying to to put these notions into practice in my own work right now. And it's Hmm. challenging, right? Like we're working on trying to fix you know, funding formulas in a couple of states that are, you know, generally good, but like not great. And it's so hard to even tinker around the edges to get change to happen. But, you know, including the voices of the people that are most affected as I think a powerful tool to get creative, but also to convince people that this is, you know, something that can actually benefit students
1: across the country. One big idea that I, I don't know if politically we're, we're in the moment, but hopefully someday, is you know this idea that we talked about earlier, that the United States is one of the very few countries that doesn't have education as a fundamental right. So right. fundamentally, if education is not a constitutional right across the United States, you're going to have 50 unequal systems almost by definition, starting gate. So I would sort of encourage those that are advocating and those in policy to really give this idea a thought, you know, what would be the positive consequences of creating a education as a fundamental right in the constitution? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's many, I think especially if you're equity-based it will actually provide equity guardrails across the system. It'll make sure that we can sort of think about how funding systems are are designed across states versus every single state having to adhere to the low compliance of whatever state requirement is in their own constitution, but having a federal sort of guideline for that. And I, I think the missed opportunity is making sure that we raise all the votes here. There's moments to be decentralized and there's moments to really think about local um, issues that are very particular and very unique. Right. But also I think education shouldn't be a state decision. Every person born in the United States has that right.
0: are still mostly funded by state and local dollars, about 90% to be exact, with the rest of the pie coming from the federal government. But today's episode was really less about education funding and the mechanics about how money flows from Congress, and from state houses, to schools and classrooms. It was more about our fundamental priorities, and it posed the question, are we putting our money where our mouth is? As a country. So where do we go from here? Ask your district superintendent and chief budget officer for a copy of your budget. Attend your local school board meetings where they approve the budget every year and ask questions. Don't be shy. Ask how your school and district's priorities are reflected in your budget. Ask who is not being prioritized in the budget. What students? What's being overlooked? and push your local state legislator or member of Congress to talk about their budget priorities for education in the next election. We'll never reach a federal right to education unless as voters, us, you, me, we demand education to be a core election issue. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support for today's show is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sam is a creative director. And senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book, the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.